I'm Jessica Livingston, and Carolyn Levy and I are the Social Radars. In this podcast, we talk to some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley about how they did it. Carolyn and I have been working together to help thousands of startups at Y Combinator for almost 20 years. Come be a fly on the wall as we talk to founders and learn their true stories. Today, we're talking with Bill Clarico, one of the founders of WePay, which Y Combinator funded back in 2009. WePay was one of the first of what are now called fintech startups and helped pave the way for many other companies in this space. In 2017, JP Morgan acquired WePay for about $400 million. Listen in to the adventures of an early fintech pioneer. Carolyn, we have Bill Clarico on today. Bill was the co-founder and CEO of a company called WePay, which was in our summer 09 batch. And now he is running a fund called Convective Capital that focuses on fire tech. Hey, Bill. Hi, Bill. Hey, Jessica. Hey, Carolyn. It's awesome to be here. We're so excited to talk to you today. Me too. Actually... Founders at Work was one of the very f- first books I read about startups. So I feel like this is like a, just such an awesome opportunity to, to, to be on the podcast version of that. Oh, that's so great. That came out so long ago. And it's what I love to do. I love talking to people. Totally. About how they got started and things like that. So we're excited to have you. I remember when I think back to that summer 09 batch, we had an interesting interview with you, Bill. <laughs> And, and and Rich, your co-founder, because I believe you had an exploding term sheet from another accelerator and you like emailed us and said, we have this exploding offer. What should we do? So t- what do you remember from that? Yeah, well, maybe I'll even back up a, a little bit before yeah. that. So we had been trying to, to kind of get WePay started for almost a year in Boston and you know, because we weren't in YC, we were doing all the wrong stuff. We were, you know, I was trying to raise money. I had a great pitch deck and no product and hadn't really talked to users and, and, and all that stuff. So, you know, no surprise, we were running out of money and we were kind of floundering a bit. And so, you know, we applied to YC as sort of a saving grace and we had applied to a couple other accelerators as well. And we Can I interrupt ex- you for one second and ask sure. you if this was in the summer 09 or, you know, right before summer 09, yep. why hadn't you applied to Y Combinator before? Like we were literally in Boston in 05, 06 and 07 <laughs> and 08, you know? <laughs> yeah, I had quit my job in August of 2008 and it was like the worst possible time to be striking out on your own. I think I quit on like the first week of August. And then I think in like August 14th or something, Lehman Brothers imploded. And then like, like it was just like the world yeah. was melting down. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I think we just like weren't really aware. We, we, I was just like, we're going to start a company. And I don't think I had heard of YC or really even understood. Okay. So even though you were in Boston, you hadn't heard of us. That no, shows you how I, good I, my marketing <laughs> skills were back then. Well, okay. it worked out. <laughs> so you, you said, this is our last hope. And you applied to some accelerators. Yeah. So we had an offer from another accelerator and they basically said, hey, you know, you've got this exploding offer. And I think they had timed it to be before the YC deadline, yep, yep. like kind of to be Oh, tricky. of course they did. That yeah. was their move. Yeah. And so we, 
you know, we emailed you guys and we said, hey, we have this exploding offer. Any chance you could interview us early? And I think PG had emailed back and just said, if you can be here like this weekend, we'll interview you. And so we were like, great. And we booked our tickets. And the funny thing is the other accelerator, their deadline, they changed it. They were like, we need to know by Friday. And so we actually had to basically turn them down or at least say like, we can't get back to you by Friday um, so that we could even come interview early. And so we we did that because we just had like a good feeling about YC. And we knew we wanted to do that. And so got on the airplane, flew out to the West Coast. I remember we got there early. We were staying with a friend. And so Rich and I were like walking around on the Bay Trail, uh, just like killing time before the interview. And we're looking around at Silicon Valley and we were just like, this place is awesome and, and where we want to be. Yeah. And we came over to your garage in Palo Alto and we interviewed and you guys let us in. It was great. And did we tell you right then and there? Because was it was it Paul and I and Trevor or just Paul and I? No, it was you, Paul and Trevor. Okay. And no, you you called us back later that night. So we, we interviewed. Okay. We left and I remember actually we had left and we like really had no money and you chased us out onto the front lawn of your house and you said, Hey, here's the <laughs> check for your travel. You know, it was like, it was like 600 bucks or something like that. We were like, Oh, thank God. And so we got like 600 bucks and then we uh, went back and hung out with our friend for a little bit. And then we got the call a couple hours later and we were just so excited. Oh, I remember we really liked you, both you and Rich. And you were working on this very cool idea. So it was sort of a no-brainer. I do remember. Because we were much stricter on the specialty early admissions startup, yeah. you know, choices, interviews that we had to do. We we occasionally had to, to do this for um, startups that would get exploding term sheets. Meanwhile, just notice the, like, juxtaposition of the accelerator offering you an exploding term sheet versus, like, me running after you in the chat. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awesome. Know, but Cha- anyway. Changed our life. We got back to Boston and we literally the next day like sold all our furniture, packed up my car, and we drove to the to the West Coast in my nice. like 1998 Toyota Camry. And we did it in 34 <laughs> hours, wow. which is quite an accomplishment to get from, oh from Boston. To wow. You, did you guys not stop and do a little sightseeing? No, we, we just – we were like we, – we wanted to get – out west so that we could like get the funding to like get up and running we were just like eager to get going forget about sightseeing what about sleeping like is, <laughs> that's the question yeah we we didn't yeah. sleep we just kind of alternated uh at one point we slept for like 45 minutes in like a gas station that was like our, our one big stop of the trip wow and you guys lived now this might have been later so tell me if this happened later or then but you guys lived around the corner from us do you remember that fabulous place in palo alto that was our that was our place, but that um, that came later. Actually, our okay. very first stop in Silicon Valley was we moved into a house in Milpitas, uh, kind of e- just east of San Jose, and uh, it was seventeen hundred dollars a month mm-hmm. for a four bedroom house, and it was uh, no wow. air conditioning, and we lived next to like <laughs> uh, I think it was a gang. There was some sort of you know not so great activity <laughs> happening next door and, and uh but that was our first place you know after YC we went out and raised some money we moved to to Palo Alto you know to a we were right on the railroad track so it still wasn't a the best of Palo Alto but we were much more in the action which was great and we were giving you at that time was it $12,000 i think it was something like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it was it was you know I, to us, felt like a lot at the time, uh, given that we were running off of credit card debt and, you know, got us through the summer. Um, but in hindsight, <laughs> it was pretty, uh, pretty thin times. And we didn't have any software yet back then to book office hours. Was it still sort of like we'd see you on Tuesday nights? 
you'd give an update and maybe you'd meet with, you know, a partner. Was it just still me and Paul? I'm now like wondering about summer 09. Yeah, it was uh, you and Paul and Trevor. Um, okay. I don't think Harj was there yet. Trevor was working on any bots. And so, you know, we would like part of the fun of coming to Tuesday night dinners was to like go see the robots and you and PG would cook. And we'd have the, you know, the infamous YC uh, beans. Uh, the beans. Stew, the bean the beans. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And Jay glop. Levy, of course. <laughs> yes. Jay Levy, who's Carolyn's husband, um, for the listeners, was one of the first people that ever worked at yeah, YC yeah. that wasn't a founder. Yeah. Goes, yeah. He goes That was summer back. or not. I remember that he started right. I think that he, your batch was his first batch working there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We would play yes, basketball with yes. Jay Levy. Yeah, that was that was always fun. So you are pretty young, you're in your 20s, and you're working on like a moving of money and payments type of company. What was it like to work with banks back then? And by the way, for for listeners, Bill has a very young looking face. Yes. I have (laughs) to say you've aged very well. But when you were, I mean, when you were like 25 or something, you must have looked like a baby. What was it like working with banks with like no credentials and a baby face? Yeah, it was it was tricky. And, you know, one of one of the things you need as a payments company is you need what's called a merchant account, which allows you to basically process credit cards. You need access to Visa and MasterCard and all that. And banks are very careful about who they give merchant accounts to. You know, they're very used to giving them to restaurants and retail shops. They're like not so used to giving them to like two 23-year-olds who want to move money for other people in a sort of complicated online way. And so um, this is before Stripe existed or anything like that. So this is sort of, you know, back in the day. And so we would, you know, basically would have to go try to set up these merchant accounts at these banks. And the banks would like slowly get suspicious about what we were doing and try to like, (laughs) you know, investigate us in various ways. And so one day they were like, we want to come visit your office. And we were like, well, we can't really take them to the house in San- in Milpitas. That's not the meth house was yeah, off exactly. limits. <laughs> the meth house was, was off limits. So we actually borrowed YC's offices for the day and we put up WePay signs all around the office. And we had some friends come and like pretend like they were working and they came and did their inspection and we showed them all around and we did like a quick walkthrough. And then we were like, well, let me show you some robots. And we took them over to Trevor's spot. Ignore the terrifying (laughs) robots. That's funny. It was kind of like a whole, you know, dog and pony show we put on and we passed the inspection and we, we kept our merchant account. So. Hang on, because I I have a I have a memory of this. I remember being sort of like half not excited about putting up WePay, you know, signage in the office. I can't but imagine I think, why you wouldn't be excited about that. <laughs> but we, I do remember it because you used like where where the partners would meet Carolyn. They put up like a WePay sign, so that was the office. And then uh, yes, I love yes. that you're like, come back and see like the walking robots, <laughs> like distressed. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see over here. Yeah. Nothing to see. I didn't know you had friends come and pose as employees, though. Yeah. That oh, was, wow. It was, I mean, because there was just no way we were going to pass with like two people living in a house. And so that was what we did. Do you remember which bank gave the tour or did you give the tour to? I don't remember. I think it was sort of a smaller regional, you know, sort of payments bank. You know, it wasn't okay. Um, okay. wasn't one of the big ones. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, I think the big ones would have seen through our tricks probably. <laughs> <laughs> but they gave you a merchant account. Yep. Um, and actually, just for the listeners, tell them what WePay did. 
Yeah. So at the time, we were what we called a group payments company. So we were trying to make it easy for friends to collect money from friends so you could split the dinner check or, you know, travel together. And so this was, you know, again, before Venmo or any of these other types of offerings. So we were really competing with just PayPal at the time. And we tried to make a friendlier, you know, easier to use um, kind of mobile and social version of, uh, of PayPal to send money to friends. And this has to have grown out of your own lives, right? The idea. Absolutely. Yeah. We, um, I mean, just in college, we were always traveling and doing things together and I think the eureka moment was Rich was actually planning his brother's bachelor party in South Florida. And he had rented a house and he was trying to collect money from like 13 different people. And, you know, there's always the two people that don't pay. And, yeah. you know, we were sort of thinking about this problem together. And we were like, this, this feels like, a you know, when you're 22 or 23, of course, everyone splits houses. And that's just sort of like a very regular thing. And so that was sort of the original idea. And did you and Rich meet in college or after college? Yeah, we actually met, we were seniors in high school and we were interviewing for the same scholarship at Boston College. And so we were going to BC for the weekend to interview and we met in the airport uh, and we both ended up getting the scholarship. We decided to live together and kind of the rest was history. No way. Yeah. I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah. You were applying for the same scholarship and he's like from New Jersey, right? I'm from New Jersey. He's from from South Florida. Yeah. Okay, and you met in the airport and both got this same scholarship we, and lived together? Yeah, we together? were like waiting for the shuttle to go to, to, go to BC, to, and, and we just started chatting. And we ended up hanging out a bunch that weekend and, you know, decided to live together and, and you know, had a lot of fun that's in college a, together. That's a founder meet cute. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rich has this idea out of born out of his own frustration with this Bachelor weekend. And were you both thinking – Oh, I want to start a startup. Like, were you employed somewhere in Boston working at a big company and you wanted to do a startup with him? Yeah, I was working as a investment banker in Boston. Ooh, which one? Uh, I was at a, a firm called Jeffrey's Broadview. So this is like sort of a boutique M&A bank that had been acquired by Jeffrey's. I was working out in Waltham, Massachusetts. Do you know, I grew up near Waltham. Okay. Route 128. I worked for a Boston boutique investment bank called Adams Harkness and Hill. So of course I know Jeffrey's Broadview. And actually, I think Jeffrey's handled the ViaWeb acquisition. Oh, no way. I did not know that. Yeah. Small world in Boston. Yes. Okay. So you were working there at the investment bank. And what was Rich doing? Rich uh, was applying to law school. And so he had actually, he had kind of taken a year off. He was tutoring the LSAT. He applied to law school. Um, he actually got into NYU Law, which is a top five law school. And, yeah. and not only that, but got a full scholarship to go to NYU. Wow. And so we were sort of bouncing ideas back and forth. You know, I'm you know, making my six figures at, uh, at Jeffries in Boston. He's getting ready to go to law school. He had a lease for an apartment in uh, Manhattan. And we kind of talked each other into just quitting and going for it. And he quit and, you know, he uh, deferred his admission for a year. And in doing so, by the way, lost his scholarship. So he's going to have to reapply for the scholarship. It's a huge risk. And uh, I quit my job and he moved in on my couch in Boston and we got to work. You can't see me. The listeners can't see me, (laughs) but I have my mouth agape because I have to say, I can't believe Rich gave up his full scholarship to law school after spending a year, like studying for the LSATs and everything like that is really believing in your idea or wanting and wanting to do a startup, I guess. I played a little bit of a trick on him where 
we met with the lawyers to incorporate WePay. This is before he had really decided. And we spent like an hour or two with like a corporate attorney, you know, who was like many years older than us, but was like, you know, putting – giving us paperwork to sign and, you know, just sort of like doing administrative tasks for us. And I, we like left the meeting and I was like, Rich, you can study really, really hard and you can work your butt off and you can go be that guy. Or, you know, we can go start a company together and we can go do something great. And he, he made the right choice, I think. He was like, that guy's life looks lame. <laughs> I want to do something else. Caroline, I yeah, I wanted that. your response. Yeah, I yeah. actually, uh, I mean, I like doing that kind of stuff. So, um, <laughs> but it's not for everybody. <laughs> well, I think there's a difference too in working with lots of, you know, really exciting companies and being like a corporate attorney at a big law firm. Those are, uh, you know, it's a tough job. It's, yeah, everybody has a different personal experience. That's for sure. Yeah. So, I got a taste of that as an investment banker, and so I just knew it wasn't yeah. what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, were you working long hours doing pitch decks and things like that? Definitely, and we had um, we had done a bunch of layoffs because it was 2008, and so they have you know they basically laid off all the junior people except for like a handful of us, and so it was the small number of us supporting all the senior bankers who hadn't yet gotten laid off, and so it was just like it's Ooh. a really tough year. We were sleeping under our desks like four or five nights a week. It was pretty pretty yeah. wild. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, Bill. Bad for morale. Mm. Yeah. Very but it made it very easy to quit and go do a startup, which is what matters. Okay. So it's summer 09. You're in California. You're going through YC. Do you have any other memories of that summer and that batch? And who was in that batch with you guys? The um, Lockatrons. The Lockatrons. Yeah. Eventually became our roommates in Palo Alto. Um, it was also uh, Suhail and Tim from Mixed Panel. Oh yeah, uh, Dave Lieb and and Jake from Bump. Um, mm, yeah, Dave, great- Dave Lieb was on the podcast. Yes, I, I listened to that episode. Okay, He's yeah, such an amazing oh. story. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was a great batch. We had we had a, a good group of people around. Do you have any memories of YC sort of from that summer? I mean, there's just so many memories. I mean, one of the highlights of our summer was we won Prototype Day. So we felt like a million <laughs> bucks. We were like voted at the top and we were like, man, we really made it. This is amazing. Now, Prototype Day for our listeners is sort of a artificial. We, we made up the day to sort of get people <laughs> to light a fire under people. Like a month in, I think it used to be, we'd say, you're going to have to present for a minute or two to the rest of the batch, just tell them what you're doing. And it forced people to sort of get their acts together. And at the end, just for fun, we'd bring out a big colander or a big bowl from the kitchen. And we'd be like, okay, everyone has to vote on who you would most want to have stock in. If someone could give you X amount of shares, which company? And it was always interesting the way the batch voted. Yeah. For their peers, because it usually not in your case, Bill, but it usually was never an indicator of who the most successful startup was. It was usually an indicator of who the best speaker was, believe it or not. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But Um, I'm still impressed you won prototype day. For us, it felt like just huge validation after like a year and a half of really grinding. Um, It was like such a great win. Did you get your batchmates to use your product? We did. Yeah. We um, are. So, you know, of course we, you know, meet with you and PG and you guys would tell us, go find users and go talk to users. And so um, the very first users of our product were our batchmates and we weren't really sure how to get them to use it. So we actually hosted a poker night 
in our garage in Milpitas, uh, and the buy-ins were only through WePay. So, um, nice. you know, that was sort of our, our very first kind of real transactions on the platform. And you think like we might have like a, have had like a really beautiful piece of software behind the hood, but it was basically a form that would say like, you know, rich paid $50. And then I would like log into our bank account on the back end and like actually like do the transfer. And so that was like the very first version of WePay was like this UI and then, you know, us on the back end just manually doing stuff until, um, until we got, you know, more automated. Oh, that's hysterical. You were yeah. manually doing the transfer after yeah. it happened. So that was there like a half an hour delay or maybe poker night? Oh, no, it was, was like, delay. it was like 24 or 48 I hours. I was say, I bet it was longer than a half an hour. <laughs> it's not. Oh, my uh, God. But that was sort of a, a way that we actually, you know, did that a couple times, you know, over the course of history for various parts of the product. And I think that was really much in line with the do things that don't scale. I was uh, just going to say, yeah, yeah, um, that's. A classic do things that don't scale story. Yeah. I mean, if you're processing thousands of transactions a minute, of course, it has to be automated. But when you're processing five a day, like manual works actually pretty well. So those were those were our first users. And then our second users were we went and Rich was would sort of cold call fraternity treasurers across the Bay Area. So we had a fraternity at San Jose State and we <laughs> invited them over for a barbecue at our house in Milpitas. <laughs> and we got them all signed up to collect their fraternity dues on WePay as part of that. And so those, I thought you just say we got them all drunk. No, no, no. no, no. I mean, I mean, I think we, we had beer at our barbecue for sure. But uh, but it was um, those those were our second users. And, and we would literally like force them to sit at our keyboard and like walk them through the process of setting up an account and, and starting that. Very smart. Wow. I mean, this is seriously doing things that don't scale. Yeah. We were pretty scrappy at the time. And then we realized that there was a lot of opportunity in these college clubs. And so we thought about how do we get in touch with more college clubs? And so we would basically started building these email lists of like all college club treasurers. We discovered that most schools, most universities have non-password protected LDAP servers. And so you could actually connect. You could download like the entire student body's email list and you could like cross-reference that with the clubs and you could, you know, so we we started doing email marketing that way. Oh, that is sneaky. Yeah, we were I mean, you were were (laughs) exploiting a weakness in there. Yeah, yeah I mean, we, and we would send personalized emails. It wasn't spam. It was sort of like, okay, yeah. we're a startup and we've got some great organizations at San Jose State using us and would love to talk to you about, you know, how to simplify your, your dues collection. And did you get good feedback from the college students? Or did we they did, say, yeah, yeah, we use this all the time? Yeah, we ended up finding really good product market fit, less on sort of splitting the dinner check, which is what we thought, and much more on kind of club finances at universities. And so Hmm. at one point we had like over half of Harvard Business School was using us for all their different clubs. So we kind of found this little niche pocket where um, there was this real pain point around collecting money from a lot of people. And that was where there was kind of a willingness to pay us for that service as well. So that was where we found our, our first sort of pocket of customers. If you're a demo day, which is at the end of the summer, you know, a couple months into things, was that kind of part of your pitch? Like our first customer bases are these college clubs. Is that the point you were at? Yeah, we were, you know, this was 2009. So, you know, Facebook had just sort of run the similar playbook a couple of years earlier where they started at college clubs and campuses and, 
you know, use that to sort of get to, to scale. And so some investors saw some similarity there. I will say demo day was tough for us. It was a really hard time. There weren't many people writing checks because it was 2009. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. we pitched over 40 investors and most of them sort of passed or half passed. And then eventually we met someone named Eric Dunn, who was a very early employee of Intuit. And he really liked what we were doing. And he offered to invest 200K. And importantly, he introduced us to David Hornick at August Capital and said, David, I really believe in these guys. And David quickly offered to invest a million dollars. So we had 1.2 million. That's all you need? That was all we needed. And of course, as soon as you have a good, strong lead like that, all the other investors called us back and we ended up raising about $1.8 million from, you know, some awesome angels, Max Levchin and Ron Conway and, yeah. you know, a bunch of other folks. So that was, oh, our, that's that was awesome. So and that we raised at a whopping $3 million pre, which we were, <laughs> which we were very uh, excited about. Wow. wow. Times have changed. <laughs> that's breaking my brain right now. But yeah, those were the numbers back then, yeah. you yeah. know, and it was not a good time to be yeah. fundraising, but it sounds like even though you got some initial no's, you turn things around and it, it all went well. Yeah, we just kind of kept raising, you know, and I think um, eventually met someone that our story really clicked with and, you know, hashed out a deal that worked for everyone and uh, it worked out. Would you and Rich go together or would you go? Yeah, I was mostly doing the fundraising and Rich was back home working on the product and also just like trying to get the product to grow because like you know, we would try to be showing some decent double digit growth week over week, which is a lot of work. You know, it's a lot of club treasurers to to talk to and get signed up and get them using our product. So um, that was kind of how we divided it up. I remember when we got our term sheet from David Hornick, we met at the um, Four Seasons in Palo Alto and he kind of like gave us the term sheet and we like played it real cool. Uh, and then we got out to the car and we closed the door and we just like went crazy. We were so excited. Aww. We started screaming. It was, it was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> what group did you target right after club treasurers? Like what was your next big customer target? Well, I think one of the things that we realized was that clubs were good for some usage, but it was like they would collect money a couple times a year. It wasn't like a very frequent use case. And the more frequent use cases, it was hard to charge. You know, it's like if some if you're sending money to split the dinner check, people didn't want to pay 2% or 3%. Right. They wanted to do it for free. And so we kind of started floundering a little bit at that point. We tried like a bunch of different use cases. We built like a donation page and we built a event ticketing page for our, our clubs. You know, we built like more sophisticated invoicing tools. We built an online store. Like we were just trying all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think what ended up happening was like we had like the third best product in every single category, but not the best product in any one category. And it, yeah. you know, we ended mm-hmm. up with, a little bit of traction here and there and it was sort of working, but it wasn't really working. And then we ended up building an API and allowing, you know, sort of third parties to build on top of our platform because we were getting phone calls from other founders and the other founders were saying, Hey, you guys know a lot about payments. We're trying to figure out payments. How do you work with a bank? How do you set up this whole stack? What do you do about fraud? And so we were giving out all this advice and then we were like, maybe that is actually a better audience to go uh, sell to as our, as our customers. And we built yeah. an API to kind of serve them. And so that ended up being the the future of the business um, yeah. and, and really took off. Wow. What year was that roughly? This was like, it was, you know, in hindsight, it's like this crisp anecdote. But I think in reality, it was like <laughs> over the course of like 18 months, we kind of 
knew that growth was kind of slowing down. We needed to do something else. We're trying a bunch of stuff. And so I think this was probably like 2012, 2013 uh, that we were kind of figuring this out. And then I think uh, one of our first customers on our API was GoFundMe um, when it was a two-person company and they were just getting started. And so they started to really grow and crowdfunding really started to take off. Wow. And and that was what kind of helped open our eyes to our API business. Did you have any big problems with fraud? Tons. Yeah. So what we were doing on the fraud side was similar to our do things that don't scale approach where we would kind of manually review transactions. So transactions would come in, we'd have like a team on the back end looking through them to kind of just manually look at stuff. And that was working until all of a sudden growth started to really take off with, you know, GoFundMe's growth and, and, and others. And so we just couldn't review all the transactions anymore. Um, and there's one week where we lost $500,000 in the span of like seven days. And so that was really sort of scary because if we didn't stop it immediately, we were going to be out of business and we had just sort of hired a couple of folks from eBay, uh, on the risk side. And so they very quickly like stood up a much more automated way of reviewing those transactions and kept us in the fight, but it was really scary and kind of touch and go for a little while because once fraudsters find a little weakness in your system, they just like swarm to it. Yeah. I was going to ask, did like Max Levchin have some insights that were useful? He did. Yeah. Considering his work with PayPal. (laughs) Yeah. It it was, it was crazy how, how quickly it went from like zero to like 500 K. So we were like, we're fine. We're fine. We're fine. We're fine. Yeah. And then all of a sudden one day we just woke up and we were getting like chargeback after chargeback after chargeback. And we're like, what is happening? And I guess word had gotten out on like these hacker forums that like we had this weakness and they were just like on us. And so Max and a couple others helped us sort of get things fixed. Wow. That's pretty scary. Yeah, totally. Changing the subject. I'm curious about your memories of Palo Alto. You were living near us in Palo Alto. This is when you were living with your batchmates, the Locatron. So it must've been maybe 2010 or a little bit later. What was Palo Alto like? Because this was before the sort of gravity shift up to San Francisco for all the startups. Back when like University Ave was this magical place and the University Cafe, all the, you know, startups raised money from VCs there. And this is before like Palantir took over every single office and there were actually <laughs> were lots of startups around <laughs> Palo, downtown Palo Alto. What, what do you remember it being like? Facebook was on University Ave then. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was awesome. It was just kind of like, I, you know, it was paradise for, for startup founders. You know, you would walk around and, you know, the weather would be great and there would be, you know, PG walking around or you'd run into like other friends from your batch. And so it was kind of this like really tight knit community that were people building things in technology. And I also think sort of startups were a lot less cool and a lot crazier then than they maybe are now in the middle of the great recession, you know, you had to be really into startups to go quit your job and go move to Palo Alto and start building stuff. And so the community was kind of smaller and more intimate and, you know, you'd walk into coffee shops and just sort of see friends. And it was, it was just kind of a really fun time to to be there and to be building. Did you ever interact with the Airbnbs? They were in the batch before us. So yeah, I mean, I've uh, went for a couple walks with Brian at the time and certainly they're around and, you know, the, Patrick and John from Stripe were around too. Over on, uh, I guess it was probably Ramona, and you know, so oh it was yes, sort of this, yeah, there's sort of this great office. little community of founders uh, that was that was just fun to be a part of. 
the God, Koopa the era. Stripes. Yeah, Koopa the stripes were right near Koopa Cafe. Yeah. And actually, Y Combinator took over their office after they moved. It was That's this right. charming, fabulous office. Oh, yeah. the I think there was days. a Lockatron on the door, by the way, wasn't there? <laughs> there yes, was. we right. totally yeah, used right. the Lockatron <laughs> products. We actually moved into 165 University, which was, they call it the lucky office because it was the same office where YouTube got started, PayPal got started, and WePay uh, occupied it. Uh, so it was sort of a, a fun, really? um, fun little university app story down there. Where where Under- was 165 University app? Kind of right near. It was right above the the vegan loving hut. If you remember that place, <laughs> it sounds uh, like familiar. University and High Street. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. So down toward the Caltrain. Yeah, there was always this faint scent of like falafel in our office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. I do remember that. I wonder who's in the lucky office now. I wonder that too. I wish you could knock on the door. Palantir yeah. probably. Or did they move? <laughs> yeah. They just, they recently moved all their headquarters, yeah. I think. So any other sort of crazy stories from WePay, like over the next few years? You know, the decision to kind of pivot our business away from consumer and to this infrastructure company was, I think, one of the defining decisions of our company, you know, and it was uh, it was hard. You know, I, I wish it like in hindsight, I had the clarity to be like, we're going to switch our business from this to that. But it was sort of this like year and a half or two year kind of gradual transition away from consumer and into this API business. And that I think really kind of set us back. You know, it was we didn't have the team for this new business. We didn't have like the external positioning around our company was kind of vague and murky. And, uh, and so it was, um, you know, I think in hindsight, one of the lessons I learned is like when you've got to make a big strategy change, doing it crisply and quickly and decisively is really key. And we kind of did it more gradually. And because of that, I think it was hard and we were dealing with all sorts of issues. We had the fraud issues. We had big outage issues because the people you hire to do consumer fun UI payments, uh, driven payments, and the people you hire to build like scalable infrastructure software are just different. So we would have these like hour long outages and customers would be mm-hmm. mad. And we ended up having like 65% attrition in one year from our team because it was just oh, like wow. super stressful. Yeah. So it was like, it was tough times, but eventually, you know, we sort of stuck through and changed the team over and got the team refocused and repositioned the company and, you know, we made it to the other side, but it was uh, it was a really, you know, 2014 in particular, I remember being a really, really hard year. How many employees did you have at your largest? When we were acquired by JP Morgan, we were about 300 employees. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. At the time in like 2014, we were uh, around 60. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Did your investors always support you or did they ever say, what are you guys going to do? What's going on here? Yeah, our all of our early stage investors, you know, David Hornick and Peter Bell and Paul Purcell and Chris Howard, they were just so, so very supportive through all this because, you know, they had invested in this consumer company and now we were like, hey, we're gonna do something completely different. Um, and they were just, they kind of backed us the whole way. And, you know, at one point we had like maybe two months of cash left and we were really starting to worry and, you know, I, I remember going to, to Peter and David and being like, I don't know, what do we do, guys? Are we going to have to shut the company down? The two of them sort of stepped up and said, we're going to help get this financing done. And they both put in more money and we brought another investor in and kind of gave us the time to like round the corner and make that change. And it wasn't obvious at the time, you know, it was it was sort of a, a, a tough bet. So they, they really, um, they, they were just, you know, so supportive. 
And I'm interested in the acquisition, but also what was it like to work at J.P. Morgan Chase, this huge bank? Yeah, so we, um, you know, we kind of grew up and um, we got to break even and, you know, we were around 300 people. And we started talking about who could we partner with to take the company to the next level because we were doing well, but we weren't going to be the number one or number two player in the payments market. We were like maybe number three or number four. And, you know, to kind of close the gap, it was going to require a lot of money and a lot of investment. And Rich and I had been doing this for 12 years. And, you know, we had started like a consumer company that we were really excited about. And we ended up in this like infrastructure company that was like a good business, but it wasn't like the reason we had started and became startup founders. So I think we were kind of ready to to move on. 12 years is a long time, by the it way. Is, I mean, yeah. you, you put in the time. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when JP Morgan was looking at ways to kind of modernize their payments team and came knocking and we spent actually like almost a year kind of getting to know them and talking about what an acquisition could look like and then ultimately decided it was the right right place for the company and the team. And so they took the entire team. We went inside. We operated you know, independently for a little while inside. And they gave us a bunch of money to grow the company too. So it was pretty exciting coming into it. I think like over time, you know, there's reorganizations and reprioritizations and all kinds of stuff that happens in big companies. And so I think, you know, closer to the end of our our time there, some of the thinking about what went into the acquisition had changed. And so it was the right time for Rich and I to kind of move on. But, you know, at the time we decided to sell the company, it felt like the the right thing to do. How was the DNA of like a big bank different in your opinion from the DNA of a startup? Yeah. I mean, I I don't it couldn't be more different, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I think, and I don't know if one's right or wrong. They're just very different, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, the people that work at JP Morgan, a lot of them are really, really smart, really, really hardworking, you know, worked at McKinsey and, you know, are like hard charging, intelligent people. But the things that work at, McKinsey or at JP Morgan are not the things that really work at a startup. Uh, and so it's just like a different way of thinking. It's a different way of valuing talent. It's a different way of thinking about risk. Um, you know, it's a different way of thinking about talking to customers and building stuff, you know? And so there's definitely, a, you know, I would say definitely a little bit of a, a, a culture gap. You know, we tried to solve for that by trying to operate as independently as we could, um, so that we could preserve, you know, the kind of startup culture and mentality and and all that. And I'd say we were, you know, moderately successful at that. It wasn't easy. How long did you spend there ultimately? I was there for three years. Okay. Yeah. Rich too? I think Rich made it three and a half years. So okay. he was, uh, <laughs> you know, but about, that was about the time, you know, and I think that the thinking had changed from let's keep WePay separate and let them do what they're going to do to let's start to really integrate this. And I think that's a different skill set than, than what I think Rich and I were excited about. And, and, you know, it was sort of the right time for different people to come in and, and run the company. So it's a much different company today than it was when we had it. But, you know, it's powering a bunch of great stuff at JP Morgan. And so, you know, I think it's got a, a good legacy. Great. You'd been working on this 12 years as a startup, then three years at JP Morgan. What did you do after you left JP Morgan, like, <laughs> I mean, a lot of, a lot of people struggle with, I have to do the next big thing, but we yeah. tell founders just go on vacation for a yeah. little while. Just relax. Yeah. That's, I kind of just took a year off and I like, mm-hmm. 
you know, my wife and I had, uh, we bought a ranch in Mendocino County. That was like our, you know, my, my presence to myself when we sold the company. So we were kind of living up there for the most part. It was sort of COVID, uh, you know, this is kind of 2020, 2021. And so I just spent like a year and just like worked on the ranch. I built like this patio and I built a retaining wall and I <laughs> moved a lot of dirt around, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I did, I got really into home automation. I had like cameras and well sensors and, you know, like really, really kind of useless stuff like that. But it was fun. Uh, that was what I did for a year. Um, but a kind of that, that time off in that space actually led me to what I'm doing now because during that, um, we had uh, a couple wildfires sort of uh, burn, you know, adjacent to our property and kind of on our access road. And yeah. I ended up joining the uh, volunteer fire department up there and went out on a couple of wildfires. Um, you did that before you started the fund. You were a volunteer fireman. Yeah, just for, for a year or two to kind of like learn, you know, learn about it. And mostly just because I was like interested and had time off on my hands. Yep. And, you know, kind of coming out of that, I was like, man, there's some really great people working really hard on an important problem, but there's just not enough technology or tools for them to to be as effective as they could be. And that was kind of the initial idea behind Convective Capital was to to fund, you know, the creation of those tools um, so that we could address this problem. It's a great name, by the way. Convective Capital. I love it. Thanks. Yeah, and it's the, Carolyn, the mixing of, uh, of heat from fluid transfer, which is, I think, a little <laughs> yeah. bit about like the fire world and the technology world. We need to That's mix great. them together. Carolyn, I remember, I don't know if it was last summer or the summer before, but I was talking to you about living in the Bay Area. And you said to me, you know, I can deal with most things, but I cannot deal with the wildfire seasons, you know, and all the, <laughs> no, it's right. the air. It's so, it's so stressful because yeah. you have a, you have a go bag. In case you have to evacuate, I'm just like, I don't know. It just kind of sucks. Don't yeah. have to think about that. And we had that big day in September of 2020 where the sky turned orange and oh, yeah. sun didn't come up. And yep. that was yeah, a real was breaking point for a lot of people. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I remember that day like it was yesterday, actually. It was terrible. Yeah. The scary thing is that a lot of the scientists predict that by the year 2050, in most climate scenarios, our air quality in the Bay Area will be you know, like that on a much more frequent basis that actually like our average air quality here will be similar to the wildfire season, uh, you know, year round. And so, you know, to me, that's a, a really big problem. And I think if we want to continue to live here. We're gonna have to fix that. Yeah. Uh, but be a big opportunity. I think it's, you know, for companies to think about how they can address that and um, provide tools to to stop that, I think is is a big one. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you about convective capital and the inspiration behind it. Did you ever think I'm going to start a startup to do this? Or do you think, gosh, we don't know what the solution is going to be. We need lots of people addressing different problems. Yeah, it's a great question. I was um, I was initially going to start a company. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to do something around insurance. I'm like fintech, you know, climate resilience, put those two together. Like how can we create an insurance product for wildfire risk, which is really hard to insure. And as I was sort of studying that, I kind of realized that there was just like, you, you can't insure it because there isn't a solution yet. What is the solution? It's not one company. It's probably 15 or 20 companies, you know, some that do suppression and put out fires, some that do forest management and resilience, some that do home hardening. And so, you know, I started angel investing in these companies uh, that were mm -hmm. doing that and then realized like, okay, there's actually like a, a fund here that could exist to kind of back those companies uh, at, at a bigger scale. Cause it was, 
wildfire is kind of a weird niche market. Like there's not mm. like VCs flocking to it. And so <laughs> it kind of feels a little bit like, you know, fintech in 2008, where it's like, I think a really big opportunity, but, but overlooked. And so that's what we try to do is kind of get those companies to the next level so they can access more capital. I have to tell the story. I was sitting on a panel in England. It was with some students who all came with ideas and I was a judge basically. And the startup that won was a fire tech startup idea. And one of the other panelists was a VC. And when we were sort of behind the curtains deciding who should be the top prize winner, this VC said, oh, there's no money in fire tech. Fire tech startups don't make money. I'm curious yeah. what you think about that, because hmm. I said, well, I'm invested in a fund that does <laughs> your fund, of course. Thanks, Jessica. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a little bit of the common view. That's the consensus viewpoint among investors is that this is a government problem. It's sort of not something the private sector can play a role in. And I just couldn't disagree more. You know, I think, um, you know, in in California alone, there's $2 trillion of real estate that's at moderate wildfire risk or higher. That's okay. just California. And then you think about it on a national scale or on a global scale. These are enormous numbers, you know, and uh, PG&E, which is our utility here in Northern California, lost $80 billion due to a wildfire of market capitalization. You know, they got fined and they went bankrupt and the CEO lost their job. And, and now utilities are spending tens of billions of dollars a year on wildfire mitigation. Um, so, I, you know, I think that there's, you know, really a big economics at play in, in these markets. I think it's not quite fully understood or appreciated by people. And, you think about where it's going to be, not just today, but five years from now, 10 years from now, like the, the trends are not good. And so um, I think no. the, the money at stake in, in fire and in climate resilience more broadly, yeah. I think is going to be you know, truly immense. Yeah. I'm just curious because you mentioned that a lot had to do with the government. What's sort of the characteristic failure mode for these startups? Is it that they can't get the government to adopt their tech or what? Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting technologies and solutions that are out there. I think the big stumbling block for companies in the space is just like, is there a business model, right? Uh, is there is there a willing mm. buyer on the other side? And okay. you know, fire agencies do really amazing work, but they're not known for like embracing the bleeding edge of new technology. You know, for good reason, their their lives are on the line. But I do think. That's one of the hard parts of building in this market is how can you find your first initial customers? How can you find that fire chief who's willing to take a chance or, or try something new or do a pilot? Um, and that's, I think, one of the things that we try to help our companies with is, you know, how do we help not just give them funding, but can we help get them in touch with their first customer or their second customer or the innovative person at a utility, the innovative person at an insurance company? And so, you know, we try to convene the innovators in these sort of stodgy fields and bring them all together. And so I think in some ways my, my time at J.P. Morgan uh, kind of lent itself to that, you know, and yeah. I, I think yeah. there's ways there's ways to innovate in these big organizations. It's just got to find the right people. Yeah. Wow. So have you learned a lot getting into this area? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think it's such a fascinating space to be, you know, when we started in fintech, it felt kind of similar. It was like, you know, no one really thought payments companies could, you know, no one, no one had built a successful payment company since PayPal. The banks owned everything. It was really regulated. There was all these like, you know, sort of thinking on why it wouldn't work. I think us and you know, Collisons and, and, and whatnot kind of got in there and figured stuff out and put the right pieces together and built some, some really interesting companies. And so I think there's a similar opportunity in, in fire and in climate resilience. You know, it's like, how can you 
figure out the businesses and and how to work with the incumbents, but you know, sort of create new economic models and new solutions. So I'm I'm just really loving it. It's, it's super interesting. Well, you have 27 more years to save the Bay Area's air. <laughs> yeah, level. I'm on it. Uh, I think Get on it, Bill. I think it's I think it's solvable. You know, we need um, better you know better land management, uh, better suppression and detection technologies, probably better filtration for houses as well. Yeah. So there's you know if you're starting one of those companies, please uh, please give me a call. Education too uh, for yeah. like homeowners. I, we we used to get sent this notice that looked like it was typed on a 1957 typewriter. It's fire season. Please mow your weeds yep. like this for a decade. And then this year we got a shiny like diagrams and pictures and like, here's how you get rid of these plants and here's what you should do. And it was like incredibly like detailed. And I'm like, finally, just my little community got serious about like fire prevention because we're all so hugely at risk here. Uh, so I just, I just think that times are changing and people are catching on. Absolutely. I think it's good. I think that's the the optimistic side of me, you know, looked at that day in 2020 and said, I think that was the day a lot of things changed for people and how they think about yeah. wildfire and climate yeah. resilience. And yeah. um, I think it's awoken a, a sleeping giant of, you know, governments and insurance companies and founders to go try to address this. And so yeah. I'm, uh, I'm optimistic. I have a more of a personal question for you because yeah. – Carolyn, have have you seen pictures of Bill's mini me? Literally mini me. Oh no. <laughs> How old's your son now? He's uh he's ten months, ten and a half months. Oh my gosh. I'm sure keeping up with him takes a lot of your time. What do you like to do to relax? Are you still building retaining walls and things like that? <laughs> what, what are you doing? I do some of that. Yeah. Um it's funny, he's just progressing so quickly. Like it was I was on a five-day trip to the East Coast to go to D.C. and a couple other things. And he, when I left, he was kind of doing this like slow one-arm crawl. And then I, I got back and he's just like tearing the house apart. I mean it's just like oh, literally boy. in the span of a week. So yeah. uh, this weekend I'm going to be putting up baby gates. Baby-proofing. Like <laughs> oh, gosh. I remember <laughs> that days of the gates and the things in the sockets so they wouldn't electrocute themselves. Yeah. I'd rather build a retaining wall, honestly, than <laughs> do all the baby-proofing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, we spent a lot of time with him and, um, we still try to spend a lot of time out in the, out in the woods in Mendocino. I think having a 10 month old, you start to think about timelines differently. It's like, okay, Sully's going to be, you know, alive 80 years from now, hopefully. And so, you know, what do we want the world to look like then? And, and what, uh, what tools are we going to give him in his generation? And so, uh, I think that that's part of what's drawn me into the climate world is that we got to take that responsibility seriously so that, you know, our our kids' quality of life is as good or or better than ours. Yeah, definitely. Is there a company that listeners should know about that's doing a lot of great stuff to fight climate change, in your opinion? There's so many, but uh, maybe one I'll I'll just share is uh, we're investors in a company called Overstory. And Overstory helps utilities uh, monitor uh, vegetation growth around their power lines using satellite imagery. So, you know, the current way that utilities trim, you know, trees around power lines is they send a person out in a pickup truck and they mm-hmm. take notes and then they go inspect it. And when you have 200,000 miles of power lines, you don't catch everything and, you know, trees fall on the lines and they start fires. And so what Overstory does is kind of helps automate that and, you know, helps them really figure out where the high risk areas are they need to focus their efforts on and can get a lot more efficient about it. So that's a, a you know, one of our companies that 
Um, I think he's doing really great work and, and literally preventing fires uh, from ever starting, you know, by, by doing that, which I think is super exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Bill. I know we're coming up at the end of our time. So I just want to thank you for being on the show. We had so much fun talking to you. Thanks for having me. It was uh, it was a blast. Good get to relive the the glory days of uh, of WePay. <laughs> thanks for you know all you've done you know for for not just for WePay but for lots of other founders. I think it's uh, you've been a huge part of our story and success. Oh, thank you. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Bill. Bye, Carolyn. That was so much fun. Yeah, it's always great to talk to Bill. I had a thought when he was telling his story, which is that, and tell me if this is if I'm mischaracterizing it, but this is basically a banker and a would-be lawyer got together and started a pretty complicated, sophisticated payments company. And I think what I really love about that, now obviously they're rich and Bill are, you know, super formidable, super smart founders, but it kind of pushes back against the like, who can be startup founders, you know? And like, do you have to, like, do you have to be a certain way or do you have to have a certain amount of technicality to be a startup founder? It's more like if you have, you know, if you, if you're smart and formidable, you can start a startup. They definitely had the hustle. Just sort of like on face value, you have these two people who are going into professions that people don't think about when they think about like startup founders. So I kind of like that they push back a little bit against the stereotype. And how about that Rich left his opportunity to go to law school with a full ride. That's a that's a big leap of faith. It really is. It shows you the kind of commitment they had to this. You have to be all in to make it work. You can't think, oh, well, maybe maybe I'll do it if it takes off. This is a big trap that founders get into. They think, well, I'll work on it on the side until it really takes off. But, you know, it takes a lot of work to get something to yeah. take off. Um, so you do have to be all in. It was a long time yeah. ago. Yeah. Summer 09. And they've done a lot. And I'm so excited that he has this fun now working on fire tech because it's such an important problem, especially in California, yeah. where it's just so crazy there. Totally agree with him with Orange Day being you know, like everybody remembers Orange Day in the Bay Area because it was uh, it felt incredibly apocalyptic here. Like it's just it was dark all yeah. day. And it is really it feels, again, apocalyptic to have it be dark in the middle of the summer during the day. It just I mean, that was the day I was like, I need to have a I need to I need to live somewhere different. I didn't move. But, you know, it's right. just like I can't if this is our future. Like this is not great. Well, hopefully he'll have you know, some good luck with his. Oh yeah. No, I, I, I hope he does too. I think it would be amazing for people to focus on that and for money to flow into that space. And for them to have a champion yeah. for this industry to have a champion. Yeah. Cause it sounds like it's pretty early stage and there's still that skepticism right, right. Yeah. from the greater investment. No, it'll world. be really, uh, really interesting to see how he does with all this. And I, I wish him the best of luck cause it's super important. Well, we will talk soon then. That was a lot of fun. All right. See you next time. And uh, see you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.